I invite you to remain standing for our scripture reading. We'll be reading from Galatians chapter 3 this morning. Let's read God's good word together. You are all God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, if you belong to Christ, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. What do I wear on the first day of school? I remember thinking through that, trying to figure out how do I, you know, how do I present myself in a way so that, so that people will recognize that, that I don't care how I look. How do I, how do I, what clothes can I wear to communicate that appropriately? And, uh, and thinking through that, I remember particularly whenever I was in high school, going into high school the, my freshman year, and thinking through what do I wear, and, and I looked, I couldn't find the photo, I'm sorry. Um, you'd be like, wow, how, how cool was he? How confident, obviously not even trying. Um, that's maybe, probably not what you would have seen. But, but I, I'm pretty sure I remember the shirt that I wore. I wore a t-shirt, you know, so you'd know that I was relaxed and not uptight. And it, it was a band t-shirt, so you know I was cool because music is cool. And, uh, and it was, the band was Blink-182, so you know I was a little bit edgy, not too much, but a little bit. They're actually kind of a lot edgy. Probably not the t-shirt I would choose today. I don't have that one anymore. But, uh, but you know, I was thinking through that decision. What do I, how do I communicate uh, that, who I am? How do, how do I share my identity um, in a way that, that I will be perceived in the way that I want to be perceived? How do I dress so that I'll be accepted, so that people think I'm worthy of hanging out with? And uh, maybe you've had made that, you know, maybe you had to decide that recently or will have to in the next few days, or maybe you remember that if that hasn't been as recent for you. But, but those first impressions we think through, how am I going to communicate who I am so that people will know it? And, and maybe even how do I uh, take who I am and make myself look a little bit better so that, uh, that I'll get in with people even better. Well, you know, one of the great things is we're less self-conscious about that whenever we're younger. And uh, so I've got my, my kids, or at least my older daughter's first day picture. You can see her. I don't think she was too worried about what she was going to wear the first day. And, uh, but she started second grade at Frontier uh, just next door, had a great first day, so we're excited about that. Cece had her uh, 62nd day of uh, early learning program right here, and, uh, but she got to be in the picture anyway, even though it wasn't her first day. Um, so, so we had a great day, but, but you know, we think about who, how will we make those impressions? How, how will people accept me? How will be, I be thought of based on the way that I present myself? And, uh, you know, one, that's one of the things that, uh, that we have to answer. One of the chief tasks of growing up is answering the question, who am I? And ideally, as we get older, we become more and more secure in our sense of identity. That becomes less a source of anxiety. Unfortunately, I don't know if I'm all the way there. Okay, I do know. I'm not. Um, and, and I still wonder about that sometimes. You know, like whenever we're going to a first sports practice with a new team, I think, how do, how do I dress so that, like, do I want to be, like, business casual dad or, or like, hey, I'm athletic too, you know, so I can, uh, hey, I'll jump in and help coach or, or do I, you know, do I wear the, um, I, I feel like this is what I perceive as the Edmund dad uniform, at least whenever it's cool, is like the, the outdoor brand vest, you know, uh, do I wear that uniform because I've got it, um, 
And, you know, I think about that, and, and I'm not there. Ideally, I won't worry about that someday, and I hope to get there, but, but that continues to be an issue, and, and particularly if we're insecure in our identities, as we grow older, that can really be a source of trouble. But even if we are secure, depending on what we place our identity on, that, that can run, cause us to run into trouble if it's something temporary. Like Blink-182 broke up. If I still, my identity was still t- um, tied up with them, like what would I do? I mean, I would be lost and adrift probably. I mean, I don't know, maybe not. But you think about the, the life transitions that we go through. Um, whenever, you know, I, we had a great first day of school picture, but I, I know I've got a finite number of first day photos left. I mean, I've got 10 more with Elsie. She's in, uh, in second grade. And uh, then she will be gone. And if my identity is tied up with being the person who's getting her to school and taking care of her, then whenever she doesn't live with me anymore, I'm going to have a really hard time. I mean, I'm going to have a really hard time anyway, but it'll be a lot worse if my entire identity is tied up with it. It's the same thing whenever we retire. We see this. If, if my entire identity is my job, then whenever I retire, who am I? I mean, because there's only so much identity you can derive from golf or traveling or, or whatever it is in your family, but there's only so much of that we can, we can tie up in our identity. So we have to ask ourselves, who am I really aside from this? And one of the things about us as humans is that we're wired for stories. And so that's always tied up to our, who I am is always tied into what is the story that I find myself a part of. I love the way the philosopher Alistair McIntyre puts it. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I, do I find myself a part? What is the story that I find myself in? And uh, that's a little bit of what we're going to talk about today. We've been going through the book of Galatians. We're doing a series called Ancient Wisdom for Anxious Times and, and looking at what does the Apostle Paul teach us in his letter to the churches in Galatia? What does that teach us uh, about how we can make it through those anxious times? And one of the things that we see is, is, is how Paul goes through a transition in his life and whenever his identity drastically shifts and how he makes it through that. And so we've been going through, um, through the first week, and, and if you know Paul's background, you know that he was someone who was a Pharisee, a religious leader. Um, he was Jewish, and uh, he saw the people who followed Jesus as a threat, as, a, as um, deviating from the true teachings of the faith. And so um, his, he took it upon himself to persecute them, to arrest them, and to try to eliminate this group um, from the faith. And uh, then he met Jesus, and, and whenever he did, he realized that he was part of a story much bigger than, than he'd previously thought. And so he was part of that, and, and he began, Jesus sent him out, and he began going to teach people about who Jesus was, inviting them to become his followers, and uh, he would start churches, and then he would write letters back to them. And so that's how we got much of what's now the New Testament. The, the book of Galatians is a letter that he wrote to the churches in that region. And, and so we have that now, and, um, and the situation that gave rise to this letter is that there were rival missionaries who were going around to the churches that Paul had started and were insisting that the Galatians specifically those who were not Jewish, the Gentile um, Christians, um, people, that's essentially what Gentile means, not Jewish. Um, and, and so they would go around and tell them that you all have, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. If you want to follow him, you have to basically become Jewish, follow these laws, um, these dietary laws, and be circumcised. And, and so that was, that was the occasion for it. And, and really what they're doing by going in and, and teaching this is calling the gospel that Paul taught into question. And so he, he defends that. That's how he starts the letter of 1 Corinthians. And so he, he defends his teaching because it wasn't something that he just made up. 
but it was something that was revealed to him. And this is how he puts it in the first chapter. He says, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that the gospel I preached isn't human in origin. I didn't receive it or learn it from a human. It came through a revelation from Jesus Christ. And so it wasn't something that he came up with. It was something that was given to him. And so the people who were undermining him weren't just undermining him. They were actually undermining the one who gave him the message that he was teaching, Jesus. And so what he saw for this group of rival missionaries was that what they were doing is they were taking, they were trying to defend the tradition that they were part of, but what they were actually doing is taking their tradition and putting it above what God was trying to do by bringing Gentiles into the family of faith. And uh, that's one of the things that we run into. Whenever we place tradition above the reason for the tradition, we've created an idol. Whenever we have something that's supposed to be in service to something else, then what we're actually doing is creating an idol out of that tradition. And so, you know, college football season's coming up, and uh, some of you love the pregame, but it's not about the pregame, right? But if we make it all about the pregame, then we're missing, we're missing the point. And uh, that's what happens. If you make family dinners all about the dinner and not about the family, you're missing the point. We're in danger of creating an idol. And so that's where we were week one. Week two, we saw that after Paul had this experience with Jesus, he had to rethink his experience. He was like, hey, these, guys, these Christians are following a dead guy, and uh, this is really a problem. And then the dead guy appeared to him, and he was like, okay, I, I have some rethinking to do. I have to rethink my life choices. And so he needed to discern how he was going to respond And so one of the things that we see is he goes into Arabia. He may have spent as much as three years there um, discerning with God, hearing God's message to him, and figuring out, what do I do next? And he also consulted other people who followed Jesus. And so um, years later, he went to Jerusalem. He consulted with James and John and Peter and uh, and laid out the gospel as he taught it and the experience that he had, um, seeking their counsel because of their experience with Jesus. And they affirmed his teaching and his calling. But what he models for us is that when we're discerning, we can follow the example and teaching of Jesus uh, and as well as seeking out wise people who know him well. And, uh, and we see this in action. I mean, he, he consults with people who, who have more experience, but he also relies on his experience of Jesus to know when to listen and when not to. Because one of the things that he saw is that Peter, whenever he, um, he came under social pressure, stopped eating with Gentiles. Uh, previously, Gentiles and Jewish Christians all ate together. And then uh, some social pressure came from Jerusalem, and Peter stopped doing that. And Jewish Christians would eat at one table and Gentile Christians at another and, and so they, they stopped doing that, and Paul saw it, said, no, like, God has created one family. It's not us and them. And uh, what we saw is that there's no separate but equal in the kingdom of God. And, and so he, he, as he discerned that, he knew, look, these are people I need to look to, I need to respect, but also whenever Peter was acting contrary to the gospel, his experience with Jesus helped him to know that he needed to stand up to Peter. And he wasn't particularly diplomatic about it. Paul isn't someone who was particularly diplomatic, but he was a passionate guy, and, uh, and it's hard to argue with the results of what he did. And uh, I love the way that, um, that um, New Testament scholar Richard Hayes puts it. He says, those who have been crucified with Christ will no longer separate themselves from one another, but will gather around one table. And we get the opportunity to practice that every time we gather around communion together. There's no us in them. There's not a Democrat side and a Republican side or anything else. It's one table for all of us, and we all get the same thing, and it's all a gift from Christ.
And, and so that's where we've been this week. We're looking at Paul begins to, after he's defended the source of his, his experience with Christ, that where his gospel came from, uh, he would say the gospel, not Paul's gospel. Um, what he moves into is actually looking at the specific arguments and teachings that the, his rivals were making. And, and, and one of those that he made was that basically if, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to become part of Abraham's family. And so Abraham, kind of the patriarch of the Jewish people, of the, of the nation of Israel. And, um, and so they would say, you know, okay, this was the, God made the covenant with Abraham that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars, that, that God would bless those whom uh, Abraham blessed and curse those um, whom Abraham cursed, and that, that he would be their God. And so if you want to be heirs to that covenant, which is what they understood themselves as, as followers of Jesus, then you need to become Jewish as well. And so Paul starts, first he looks at, um, at what the Galatians have already experienced. And, and so he shares about his experience with Christ, and he looks at their experience of the Holy Spirit. And he reminds them that they've received the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has been at work in their midst. And, and it wasn't the result of works of the law. And so, um, and again, you see Paul's diplomacy coming through. You are rational Galatians. I mean, if you want to get someone's attention, I guess that's one way to do it. He said, who put a spell on you? Jesus Christ was put on display as crucified before your eyes. I just want to know this from you. Did you receive the spirit by doing works of the law or by believing what you heard? And uh, works of the law is kind of the shorthand that Paul is using, not, not to following the entire law necessarily, but circumcision and following the dietary laws that Jewish people um, followed, essentially keeping kosher. And uh, clearly implied in this is, is you have not done those things, and yet still the Holy Spirit has come to you. And so it's not about what you've done. It's about what God has done. And, and so, um, and, and so that, that's where he starts. And then next he looks at the actual argument that they were making, which probably, which we can kind of read between the lines, is that uh, Gentile Christians had to be circumcised in order to become Abraham's heirs. If you want to become part of, of G- what Jesus is doing, he's an heir of Abraham, and so you need to come into that family as well. And so this is what we read about uh, probably the, the, what the scripture that they were looking at is from Genesis 17. And so Abram was uh, renamed Abraham in the middle of this um, text, but he says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai, walk with me and be trustworthy. I will make a covenant between us, and I will give you many, many descendants." I will set up my covenant with you and your descendants after you in every generation as an enduring covenant. I will be your God and your descendants God after you. I will give you and your descendants the land in which you are immigrants, the whole land of Canaan, as an enduring possession, and I will be their God. God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants in every generation. This is my covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Circumcise every male. And so that's the source of, of, what Paul is teach, or of what Paul's rivals were teaching. The reason that they were arguing is, is like, look, this is what God said. Um, Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. If you want to come into his family of faith, if you want to be a part of what he was doing, you need to become part of that too. And this is how God says to keep the covenant. And, and so that's what they were teaching. And really at the core of, of this question of, you know, what do we need to do to become part of what God is doing? What do we need to do to become part of God's family, to become God's children? The core question here and really throughout Galatians is, is what do we have to do or, or how are we justified? How are we restored into right relationship with God? How do we come into the right relationship with God? And so he addresses this. We, we read this um, last week. But whenever in his confrontation with Peter, this is what he said. He said, you, we, 
Uh, Peter, you and I are born Jews. We're not Gentile sinners, which is how Gentiles were thought of at that point. However, we know that a person isn't made righteous or justified by the works of the law, but rather through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We ourselves believed in Christ Jesus so that we could be made righteous by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, because no one will be made righteous by the works of the law. And so the works of the law, these things that, um, that the, his rivals were teaching, uh, basically what he saw was that if you're requiring these things, then you're saying those are the things that are necessary to be justified. Those are the things that you have to do to be in re- relationship with God. And if you don't do those things, then you won't be in relationship with God. You will not become part of the family. And so he sets up a contrast between faith and keeping these works of the law. And one of the things that's kind of difficult, it's easy, particularly if you've grown up in the church and you've been taught these things for a long time, a lot of times we read this as teaching us about what, what Judaism believes. And, and um, that's, that's not really the case. A lot of times we have kind of a stereotyped view of Judaism where in order to be saved, you have to keep the entire law. And if you don't, then you're in trouble, which isn't, I mean, if you actually read it, what you see is that there are places in the law that make provision for if you do sin. And so, you know, there, there are sacrifices that you can offer that, that make atonement. Um, you're probably still familiar with uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so there, there are things in there. And so that, that, that's kind of a clue that, that we've not held this correctly. But, uh, but we sometimes get that wrong in thinking that this is what all Jews believe, that if you just keep the law perfectly and then you're saved. And, and that's really not it. Um, this is how how Richard Hayes puts it. He says, Judaism has never taught that individuals must earn God's favor by performing meritorious works. Members of the covenant people are already embraced by God's gracious election and mercy. And so that's what people saw. And so really we're not seeing, Paul's not arguing with Jews who are not followers of Jesus. It's a little bit confusing because the church and Judaism haven't completely split yet, but they're kind of on that path. But he's not arguing with people who are not Jesus followers. His conflict isn't with Judaism. It's with other Christians. And so what he's saying is something that would probably be problematic for, for Jews too, is to say that, that by your works, you can come into right relationship with God. Jews and Christians would agree that's not the way that it works. But that's what Paul sees his opponents as doing. And so what's, um, whenever he's talking about those works of the law, kind of as we've seen, uh, their, their circumcision, dietary observances, and Sabbath keeping, um, but, but specifically the practices that stand as outward symbols of Jewish ethnic distinctiveness. And, and so really what, what the problem is is, is not necessarily, um, not the, the problem isn't the law itself, but the problem is saying that you have to become part of this distinct ethnic group. You have to become part of this one people instead of God bringing all people together. He's saying this, this story is actually much bigger than just this one small part of it. And so Paul tells another story that counters that one, and it's a story not of works but of faith. And so his response is that Abraham's, Abraham's heirs, if you want to become part of that family, it's, it's not about being circumcised or following the law or any of those things. Uh, Abraham's promise was 430 years before the law was even given. What, what his true heirs, who his true heirs are those who believe. And so here's what, what he says. He says, understand that in the same way Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, those who believe are the children of Abraham. 
And so whenever Abraham was, uh, he had been promised that God would make of him a great nation, that he would have children despite his and his wife's advanced age. And, uh, and uh, that happens in Genesis chapter 12. Later on in Genesis chapter 15, it hasn't happened yet. And uh, Abraham's kind of like, what's going on? And God reiterates the promise and says, yes, I will do these things for you. And it says, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. In, in other words, he was in right relationship with God. And it wasn't because of anything that he had done. This is before the circumcision commandment. He was in right relationship before that because he believed. And so Paul says, for us, it's not about following a set of laws. It's about belief. It's about trust. It's about following Christ. And then we will become part of this promise that, that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I will bless those who bless you, those who curse you. I will curse all the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. And here's really the kind of foundational point. He's saying in Jesus, something new has happened. And the last part of that is being fulfilled. All of the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham and specifically in his descendant, Jesus, because through him, all people, not just the nation of Israel, not just people who are circumcised, all people will come into relationship with God through Christ. And, and so that's really the argument that he's making. It's not about becoming a part of this people. It's about God bringing all people in through what Christ has done. And, and one of the things that can kind of obscure that, the, the phrase that, that comes up a lot in Galatians is, um, is often translated faith in Jesus Christ. The, there's some nuance to the translation of that. And uh, it's something about a genitive something or other. I know like the three of you who love grammar are like, oh, that's interesting. The rest of you, I won't go into further detail, um, partially because I don't understand it. But th- there's nuance in the translation of this. And so um, you can tra- translate it faith in Jesus Christ, but it may be better translated is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ or the faith of Jesus Christ. And so whenever he's talking about us being saved by faith, it, it's, it, there's nuance in that it's not just our faith, but it's his faith. And specifically what Paul is talking about whenever he talks about the faith of Jesus Christ, it's his faithfulness to go to the cross to give himself for us. And so it's really not about what we do. We respond with trust, with faith, but it's not about what we do. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ on the cross is the source of our salvation, and it's nothing that we do, whether it's keeping specific rules so that we can become part of this one nation, whether it's having you know, a specific background or anything else. It's all about what he has done. And Dr. Hayes says it this way, the ground of our hope is the righteousness of God, not any human works or ethnic status. It's all about what Christ has done for all people and for all time. And so it's kind of interesting. This, this chapter is long and complex and, uh, and talks a lot about the role of the law. And, and as Paul is saying, you know, no one can be saved by works of the law. He sometimes gets pretty negative about it. And you almost want to be like, okay, Paul, I, I get that's not how we're saved. But do you know who wrote the law, right? I mean, it wasn't just Moses. Like, God gave it to him. It, it was a gift. And, uh, and, and so the role of it, it, it still has a positive role to play, although Paul says it is a temporary one, or at least parts of it are temporary. And so it, the, role, the, the law had an important part to give, but it, was never, it could never give life, and it was never intended to. That wasn't what, it was a guide for how to live, but it wasn't intended to give us life. And so Paul asks the question, why was the law given? And he answers himself, it was added because of offenses until the descendant would come to whom the promises had been made. It was put in place through angels by the hand 
of the mediator. Whenever he talks about the descendant, he's talking about Christ, who was a descendant of Abraham's. And he says it was added because of offenses. In other words, it's, it's given so that we will know um, the ways that we fall short, the ways that we hurt our relationship with God, the ways, that we, um, the ways that we hurt our relationships with others, and the ways that we fall into sin. And, and it continues to fulfill that law for us, right? Because, I mean, I don't think there's anything... Does anyone have any arguments with, like, the Ten Commandments? Like, I don't think there's anything that I would say, well, because, because Christ has come now, like, I'm not tied to the law, so I can just steal your stuff. So thank you. I will be going. Like, it, that's, that's not how it works. The law continues to show us. And there are even pieces of the law that may not, uh, that may not apply to us, that we might say, you know, it's, it's, it has more to do with kind of uh, with particular rituals. There are commandments like the commandment to leave gleanings on your fields. And so farmers, whenever they would go out and harvest their fields, they were ordered, you, you don't, they were commanded not to harvest every single um, piece, but to, to leave some food around the edges so that people who are poor and who are traveling could actually eat from your fields. Now, I, I don't know any Christian farmers who do that necessarily, you know, I mean, because probably people, I'm, the crops that you grow in Oklahoma typically need to be processed before they taste very good. And, and so they're not literally following that, but it's a reminder for all of us that what God has given us isn't just for us, that, that we continue to use our resources uh, in the same way that they left those gleanings for people who are in need, that we use our resources in order to bless others. And, and so laws like that continue to be a guide for us. I mean, we're not, we're prob- I mean, we're not following the, the kosher laws. We're not avoiding shellfish for that reason. Unless you've got an allergy, then please avoid it. But we are learning from that. They continue to show us what it means to live morally and what are the demands that God has of us. And so it continues to help us to recognize our need for grace and how we can live in harmony with God and with one another. And, and so uh, Paul asked the question, so, so it's, uh, is the law against the promises of God? Absolutely not. If a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would, in fact, have come from the law. But Scripture locked all things under sin so that the promises based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ might be given to those who have faith. And again, the, the language he uses here is kind of confusing, but he talks about Scripture locking, locking things up. Again, he's referring to the fact that, that it tells us, and specifically before Christ came, told people how essentially defined what sin was, helped them to know how they were living in ways that were not consistent with God's way of life. And it continues to fulfill that role in a different way for us today. And really what he saw is kind of what Professor Hayes pointed at, is whenever they were forcing the Galatian Christians to follow these things, he was, they were finding their identities in a particular set of practices and a particular group belonging, a particular culture, instead of in Christ. That was the story that was guiding their identity. And... and what they were grounding that in. He says the law was a gift from God, but its role was temporary. That's how Christians understand it. And, and if we today define our identities according to something temporary, it's only a matter of time until we have a crisis. It's only a matter of time until we retire. It's only a matter of time until our kids leave home. It's only a matter of time until that hobby that was really important to us becomes something that we're not able to do or we don't have the wealth that we once had or we don't have the reputation. People don't know us anymore. All of those things will pass away. And if that's what we say is the story about us that, that gives our life meaning, if that's what our identity is based on, we're going to be in trouble. And Paul says that's what's going on with the folks there. They're, putting the, they're finding a smaller story and putting all of their hope in that. That's what they put their identity in. 
on what God has done in Jesus Christ is invite everyone into a much bigger story, Jews and Gentiles, any background. God has invited all of us into this story. And, and the reason for that is Christ's coming. It's not just, you know, something else happened. It's not just another headline that, oh, this is a particularly noteworthy event. Like this man was born to, to Abraham, or to Abraham, to Joseph and Mary. And anyway, okay, we won't go into too much detail there. But it wasn't just another event that happened. It was actually the, the climax of creation. It wasn't just a historical event, but it was the hinge upon which all of history it was the beginning of a new age. It was the beginning of the kingdom of God coming on earth. And in this new age, all are welcome as children of God, every single one of us. You don't have to be a part of one particular nation or anything else. You don't have to, to do something specific. It is all what God has done of creating one people through what Christ has done for us. And so this is what Paul says. He says, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian, which is how he refers to the law here. You are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus, through trusting him. And as we come into, as we come into his faith, as we do so, as we're baptized, the old things that define us are washed away, and we receive a new identity. In, in the ancient church, people would actually be they would be naked whenever they were baptized. It was much less public than it is today, thankfully. But, uh, but you, people would actually, it was a symbolic act. You would take off your old clothes and you'd go into the water. And whenever you came out, you would receive new clothes. They would be white, um, symbols uh, white for, for purity and for resurrection. And it would be a symbolic act of putting on a new identity in Jesus Christ. Because whenever we become part of God's family, we are not the same as we were before. We're not part of just the small story that we tell about ourselves. We are part of a much bigger story, the story of God's redemption of all creation. This is what he says, all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. He becomes our new identity. And that identity in Christ transcends any divisions. It transcends any status marker, any culture, anything else. And it awakens us to his story. Because whether we know it or not, we're a part of the story. What he's doing includes every single person. But until we're aware of that, we see only our small stories. We see only the identities that we've constructed for ourselves. And that's when we're in danger of crisis, of thinking, this is all that I have. This is what gives my life meaning. And when that falls apart, that's it. When we realize that Christ has invited us into his bigger story, we know that our place is assured, not because of who I am, not because of what I've done, but because of what he has done for us. And so this is how Paul concludes this chapter. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now if you belong to Christ, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. All of those distinctions that we use to separate ourselves, to say that we're better than this group because of whatever, none of those things count. We still retain those identities. Our, our nationality doesn't go away. Our gender doesn't go away. Any of those other things, they're, they're a part of who we are, but they're not our core identity. Our core identity is children of God through Christ as given to us for the gift of faith. I love the way Rowan Williams puts it. He says, this is the, the message that we receive in the gospel, is that whenever we become part of this family, we realize the world is more than you ever thought. You are more than you ever thought. God is more than you could begin to think, and you are not trapped in the story. 
that you tell about yourself. That is a vision worth sharing. And that's what Paul was doing. He was telling people, he was inviting new people, people of all different backgrounds, into this new story. A story that transcends anything they could have created for themselves. It gives them a new identity that invites them into God's story. And the way that we find our place in that story, in Jesus' story, is simply by faith, simply by trusting God. And that's not a matter of, of believing rightly, of believing as hard as we, you know, having, you know, once you get past a, a belief score of 90, then you're good. God's not like, okay, you're almost there, but on the fourth line of the Apostles' Creed, that's, that's actually not what I meant by that. And, and so if you'll just think about that differently, then, then you'll be in. But until then, like, like, you're out. That's not, our faith is about trusting God. Because otherwise, we're turning faith into a work, something that we do. It's about receiving the gift that God has given to us. This is, again, Professor Hayes puts it beautifully. He says, it's not a matter of mustering heroic capacity to believe the odd or miraculous. It is simply a matter of receiving gratefully a gift that God has chosen to give us completely without regard to our deserving. And whenever we receive that gift, or as Paul Tillich puts it, when we accept our acceptance, then we become part of a new story. When we find our identities in Jesus' story, we no longer have to worry about finding and defending our identity. We no longer have to worry about making sure that I wear the right t-shirt so that people will think the right things about me and I'll be accepted. I no longer have to worry about working hard enough that I prove to, to myself or to other people that I'm worthy of love because I know that Christ has already accepted me. That he has done everything that is necessary for my acceptance, that I'm a child of God. One of the people that, uh, that really amazes me that I learned about this week is, uh, is Edith Stein. Um, she grew up Jewish in a not particularly um, religious home in Germany um, in the early part of the last century and, uh, and had an experience with Jesus and began to follow him. She became a Christian. And that experience led her. She joined the Catholic Church and became, became a nun. She joined a convent. And uh, she, she was a philosopher, a great mind, um, just a brilliant thinker. But, uh, but whenever, um, whenever the Nazis rose to power uh, because of her culture, because of her ethnicity, um, she was in trouble. And, and so her, she wanted to stay with her people and uh, to endure the same thing that they endured, but her religious order moved her to Holland. And so uh, she was forced to go there, and then the Nazis conquered Holland. And uh, because of something the Catholic Church had done, they, they basically condemned what the Nazis were doing to Jewish people. And, and so they specifically targeted Catholic uh, Christians of Jewish origin um, because of that and uh, found out about her and uh, they came to arrest her at the convent. And uh, as she faced that moment, knowing that it was moving toward the end of her life, um, she was called into uh, into the office where the commandant was and whenever she walked in, he greeted her as as they did. He said, Heil Hitler. And what she said back was, Jesus Christ be praised because she knew the story that gave her life meaning. And there was another story. I mean, the Nazis are are basically um, an example of what happens whenever we put our faith in the wrong story, whenever we put our faith in or make an idol out of nation or out of race or out of purity, all the things that can happen whenever we do that. She knew that was not the whole story, that Jesus Christ was. And she, at that fateful moment, greeted that man, telling him, Hitler is not Lord. Jesus is. She knew she was a part of his story. 
And she only lived about another week after that, but, uh, but in, in really in a providential turn of events, someone had encountered her on a train on the way to Auschwitz and uh, had written a letter back to her sister describing these two nuns, it was Edith and her sister, that they had encountered and the impression that they made on her. And uh, this is a, a photo of her. And what the young woman's letter said was, what an extraordinary impact they made on those who met them, even just for a few moments on the train. And whenever we find ourselves in anxious situations, it's hard for me to think of one that is more anxious than the one that she found herself in. But if we know who we are, if we know the story we're a part of, then we live differently because we know whose we are. And so I want to invite you to try to live that out this week. This is our action step. I want to challenge you to ask yourself what identities you've placed your trust in what are the things about yourself that, that give your life meaning? And, you know, maybe it's your career, and uh, this is who I am. I am my job. Or maybe it's even being a parent. Um, maybe it's a hobby, having a certain social status. You know, whatever it is, there are all these things that we put our trust in and practice letting them go. And uh, you might just practice praying and say, God, I, I, I love my job. It, it is a blessing, but that's not who I am. Help me to find my identity in you and not anything I do. I love my children. I always will. But, uh, but that's not who I am either. I'm your child. Help me to let that go. And uh, that's not to say that those things don't matter anymore. They do. But we have them in the proper relationship because we know that our identity isn't any of those things, anything that we can construct. Our identity is in Christ one who gave himself for us, and the one who welcomes everyone, no matter what. Will you pray with me? God, we're thankful that you invite us into your family, and that it's not anything that we can do, it's not anything that we can earn, but that you welcome all of us, no matter what. And so we pray that you would help us to live that out, that you'd help us to let go of all the things that we do to try to prove our worth to others or to ourselves, and that we would simply trust in Jesus and what he's done for us. We thank you for his life and his sacrifice for us. We thank you that he teaches us and shows us how to live. We thank you that he taught us even how to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.